Chapter Twenty of Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Nine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Nine, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter Twenty: The March to the Sea. Sherman saw that it was not worth while to attack Hood's entrenchments at Lovejoy Station. He said to Halleck, on the 4th of September, The enemy hold a line facing us, with front well covered by parapets, and both flanks protected by streams of water. The position was too strong to attack in front, and to turn it he thought would carry him too far from his base. He was not at that moment prepared for a long journey, and concluded to go back to Atlanta to give his army the rest it had so nobly earned, and himself a little time for reflection as to his next move. He marched back with great deliberation, feeding high on the cornfields of the Confederacy. There was a certain ostentation in his leisure. He wanted to show the enemy that he was not in a hurry. He burned some cotton on the way, but saved enough, he says, to pay the expenses of the national salute. The salutes were all fired, and the national rejoicings were over, before, on the 8th of September, he rode into the city which was the magnificent prize of his summer's work. He immediately put into execution a plan he had already formed of converting the ruined city into a military post. Before leaving Lovejoy's, he had informed Halleck that he intended to move all the inhabitants of Atlanta, sending those committed to the Union cause to the rear and the rebel families to the front. He foresaw the passionate criticism which this action would provoke, and was prepared for it. If the people, he said, raise a howl against my barbarity and cruelty, I will answer that war is war, and not popularity-seeking. If they want peace, they and their relatives must stop the war. On arriving in Atlanta, he at once announced this intention to local and municipal authorities. He had already notified his purpose to General Hood and proposed to him a truce in the neighborhood of Rough and Ready, where each side could send an officer with a small guard to maintain order and oversee the deportation of the citizens with their effects. Hood accepted this proposition, saying he would render all assistance in his power to expedite the transportation of citizens south. He could not close his letter, however, without remarking that the unprecedented measure you propose transcends, in studied and ingenious cruelty, all acts ever before brought to my attention in the dark history of war. From which it would seem either that General Hood was a very reckless writer, or that his historical reading had been limited. Sherman replied in his usual spirited fashion, showing that such acts were by no means unprecedented, even in the recent history of the Confederate Army, and then administered a sincere and searching sermon to General Hood in regard to the crime of rebellion and treason against the government, and counseled him to drop his hypocritical appeals to God and humanity, and, if we must be enemies, let us be men and fight it out. God will judge us in due time, he said, and he will pronounce whether it be more humane to fight with a town full of women and the families of a brave people at our back, or to remove them in time to places of safety among their own friends and people. General Hood answered in a long letter full of florid declamation, and concluded by expressing his personal preference to die a thousand deaths than to submit to live under you or your government and your negro allies though in the sequel he did all this before dying the one death which is allotted to men the mayor and council of atlanta also protested against the measures adopted by sherman to them he replied with equal firmness but in a tone of far greater kindness the use of atlanta he said for warlike purposes is inconsistent with its character as a home for families there will be no manufactures, commerce, or agriculture here for the maintenance of families, and sooner or later, want will compel the inhabitants to go. Why not go now, when all the arrangements are completed for the transfer, instead of waiting till the plunging shot of contending armies will renew the scenes of the past month? 
he could not give either to hood or the citizens the real reason for his action which was that the confederate works about atlanta were so extensive that they would require an army of thirty thousand to guard them he had resolved to build a compact inner line which could be held by one-fifth that number and he thought the removal of the citizens independent of the question of supplying their wants in time of active operations was a military necessity this action of sherman was approved by the war department halleck wrote on the twenty eighth of september not only are you justified by the laws and usage of war in removing these people but i think it was your duty to your own army to do so we certainly are not required to treat the so-called non-combatant rebels better than they themselves treat each other even here in virginia within fifty miles of washington they strip their own families of provisions leaving them as our army advances to be fed by us or to starve within our lines sherman also arranged with hood an exchange of two thousand prisoners from those captured at jonesboro and the business connected with this exchange and the deportation of the citizens was satisfactorily transacted at rough and ready the confederate officers and men harmonizing perfectly with their courteous adversaries and parting good friends hood continued his solemn admonitions to sherman in regard to the law of god and the laws of nations and sherman dryly answered i think i understand the laws of civilized nations and the customs of war but if at a loss at any time to know where to seek for information to refresh my memory sherman had no idea of spending the winter or even the autumn in atlanta even while he was watching the entrenchments of hood at lovejoy's his mind was already full of his next move he telegraphed to halleck asking for his share of the proceeds of the pending draft and suggesting a campaign in cooperation with canby in alabama a few days later he told him that he would have atlanta a pure gibraltar by the first of october on the tenth of september he wrote to general canby i will be ready to sally forth again in october but ought to have some assurance that in case of necessity i can swing into Appalachicola or montgomery and find friends on the same day grant was telegraphing to sherman to give the enemy no peace while the war lasted now that we have all of mobile bay that is valuable i do not know but it will be the best move for major general canby's troops to act upon savannah whilst you move on augusta i should like to hear from you however on this matter and sherman at once replied if you can manage to take the savannah river as high as augusta or the chattahoochee as far up as columbus i can sweep the whole state of georgia otherwise i would risk our whole army by going too far from atlanta and in all of his letters and dispatches of this month the control of the savannah river is assumed by him as a condition precedent to his march to the seacoast all this while wheeler's cavalry was busy in his rear and forrest held a threatening attitude in middle tennessee but sherman paid little attention to them and none at all for the moment to hood on the nineteenth of september he telegraphed to grant i can quickly bounce him out of lovejoy's but i think him better there where i can watch him than farther off finally on the twentieth of september colonel porter having visited him directly from grant and having given him the latest tidings and views which grant could send sherman wrote a careful letter to the general-in-chief discussing the entire situation and concluded by saying the more i study the game the more i am convinced that it would be wrong for me to penetrate much further into georgia without an objective beyond it would not be productive of much good i can start east and make a circuit south and back doing vast damage to the state but resulting in no permanent good but by mere threatening to do so i hold a rod over the georgians who are not over loyal to the south he therefore gives it as his opinion that grant's army and canby's should be reinforced to the maximum that after the capture of wilmington grant should strike for savannah that canby should send a force to columbus georgia that he himself should keep hood employed and put his army in fine order for a march on columbus augusta and charleston 
and be ready as soon as Wilmington is sealed to commerce and the city of Savannah in the possession of the national armies. Before Sherman had been a week in Atlanta, two prominent Georgians named Hill and Nelson came through the lines to his headquarters, rep representing themselves as having been friends in Congress of the general's brother, John Sherman. Mr. Hill's explanation of his visit was that he was in quest of the body of his son who had been killed in battle. They were kindly received and invited to dinner by the general and, as was inevitable, with so genial a host and so good a talker, there was a great deal of unrestrained conversation. The Southerners admitted their belief that further resistance was madness, and suggested the possibility of state action being initiated by Governor Joseph E. Brown to withdraw Georgia from the Confederacy. Through these gentlemen, and through Mr. Wright and Mr. King, also men of prominence in the state, Sherman sent messages to Governor Brown offering, if he would issue his proclamation withdrawing his state troops from the Army of the Confederacy, that Sherman would, instead of devastating the land as he went forward, keep his men to the high roads and commons, and pay for the corn and meat which he needed and should take. He also authorized the visitors to invite Governor Brown to visit Atlanta. He would give him a safeguard, and if he wanted to make a speech, he would guarantee him as full and respectable an audience as any he had ever spoken to. On the 15th of September, Sherman telegraphed Halleck that Governor Brown had disbanded his militia to gather the corn and sorghum of the state. I have reason to believe that he and Stevens want to visit me and have sent them a hearty invitation. This telegram being shown to President Lincoln was, of course, read with the liveliest concern, and he at once telegraphed to Sherman, I feel great interest in the subjects of your dispatch mentioning corn and sorghum, and the contemplated visit to you. Sherman replied, giving the details of the negotiations he had initiated with Governor Brown, saying, I am fully conscious of the delicate nature of such assertions, but it would be a magnificent stroke of policy if we could, without surrendering principle or a foot of ground, arouse the latent enmity of Georgia against Davis. Sherman had no doubt at the time that Brown seriously entertained his proposition, but he took no action further than that of withdrawing the state troops from Hood's army. He wrote a long letter to William King, filled with words to no purpose, breathing defiance towards the government of the United States, and an almost equal contumacy towards that of Richmond, but holding out no hope of separate negotiations. A. H. Stevens wrote more briefly, saying that the lack, on both sides, of authority to treat would preclude any conference between himself and General Sherman. Hood, on the 3rd of September, had telegraphed to Jefferson Davis, representing his pressing need of reinforcements. Mr. Davis answered that no resources for that purpose were at hand. Hood therefore decided to begin operations at the earliest moment possible in rear of Sherman. He had found that his troops were so disheartened that he dared not trust them in direct conflict with Sherman's victorious army. He telegraphed to Richmond on the 6th of September, asking that the prisoners at Andersonville should be so disposed of that his army might be free to move where he thought best. He continued, in his bewildered way, According to all human calculations, we should have saved Atlanta had the officers and men of the army done what was expected of them. It has been God's will for it to be otherwise. Feeling, however, the necessity of blaming some of the human instrumentalities, he asked that General Hardy should be removed from duty under him. In response to an urgent invitation from Hood, Mr. Davis himself resolved to visit the Confederate army in Georgia, and he arrived on the 25th at Palmetto, where Hood had by this time encamped, being the first stage of his progress in the movement to Sherman's rear. The next morning the Confederate general and president rode to the front to review the troops, and Hood was subjected to the unspeakable humiliation of hearing brigade after brigade welcoming the executive with the shout, Give us General Johnston! In the evening Mr. Davis was serenaded, and the usual florid and defiant speeches were made by himself, by Howell Cobb, and by Isham G. Harris, governor of Tennessee, in Partibus. The next day was devoted to the discussion of Hood's plan and the reorganization of his army. 
the question of the removal of hardy from the command gave mr davis considerable embarrassment he had known him too long and too well to share hood's prejudice against him and had probably by this time learned that he had overrated hood's own capacity he solved the difficulty finally by giving hardy command of the department of south carolina and florida which was nominally a promotion and by placing beauregard over hood in the command of both his department and that of general richard taylor he apparently made no objection to hood's scheme of cutting sherman's communications selecting a position on or near the alabama line in proximity to the blue mountain railroad and there giving him battle hood urged that an offensive movement would improve the morale of his army to a degree that would render it equal to fighting the enemy but that at the moment it was totally unfit for pitched battle and that the plan in question offered the sole chance to avert disaster the supersession of hood by beauregard involved at first no modification of his plans and he at once pushed forward to strike the railroad in sherman's rear sherman became aware of his plan shortly after its execution had begun he told halleck on the twenty fifth of september that hood seemed to be moving to the alabama line an announcement which drew from grant the query whether it would not be impossible for hood to subsist his army on that line sherman put a strong garrison in chattanooga and one in rome and with much reluctance for he was anxious to start on his southern enterprise moved north of the chattahoochee himself with a great portion of his army to see if he could bring hood to battle hood marching in light order moved his force with expedition to the railroad which stuart's corps struck at big shanty and at ackwood destroying several miles of the road a division under s g french was sent to capture alatuna at which important post there were stored some three million rations sherman had sufficient notice of this intention to order general john m corse from rome to alatuna his timely arrival increased the garrison to nearly two thousand men french arrived before the place at daybreak on the fifth of october and after a furious cannonade demanded its surrender to which corse made the plucky reply which might have been expected from his character one of the most stubborn engagements of the war now took place between the confederate division outside and the little garrison all the commanding officers were badly wounded lieutenant colonel james redfield was killed lieutenant colonel james e tortolot and colonel richard rowett fell with disabling wounds course was knocked senseless for nearly an hour by a rifle bullet in the face but rallied and conducted the defense the rest of the day sherman from the crest of kennesaw eighteen miles away conversed by means of signal flags with the gallant defenders of the fort and received from course at two o'clock the famous dispatch over whose profanity it is doubtful whether the recording angel wept or smiled i am short a cheekbone and one ear but am able to whip all hell yet whether the powers of darkness did or did not recognize the uselessness of attempting to conquer such men general french at least came to the conclusion that they were more than he could manage and at three o'clock retired lieutenant mackenzie commanding the signal squad himself signaled the news to sherman that the attack had failed amid the whistling of a storm of bullets fired at him by the sharpshooters in the confederate rear in spite of this check however hood was so elated by his rapid progress and his work on the railroad that he decided to move further north and again strike the road between resaca and tunnel hill to destroy it thoroughly and then move in the direction of the tennessee he imagined in this way he might entice sherman as near the tennessee line as possible and there turn upon him and defeat him he therefore marched through dallas to coosaville crossed the coosa river on the eleventh of october and marched upon resaca and dalton sherman who always found it difficult to comprehend the eccentric movements and to deduce from them the intentions of hood was more annoyed than disturbed by this manoeuvre he telegraphed grant on the ninth of october 
it'll be a physical impossibility to protect the roads now that hood forest wheeler and the whole batch of devils are turned loose without home or habitation and proposed to break up the railroad from chattanooga and start out with wagons for his southern trip until we can repopulate georgia he said it is useless for us to occupy it but the utter destruction of its roads houses and people will cripple their military resources i can make this march and make georgia howl he took however the most energetic means to find hood and if possible to fight him but could not effect this purpose s d lee with his corps moved on resaca and in hood's name demanded its surrender adding if the place is carried by assault no prisoners will be taken this barbarous threat however did not intimidate the garrison and its commander colonel clark r weaver and lee failing to take the place was not put to the painful necessity of slaughtering its defenders on the thirteenth hood in person demanded and received the surrender of dalton he then quickly retired from the railroad and moving towards villanow he passed through the gaps in the mountains and halted for two days at the crossroads in a beautiful valley nine miles south of lafayette he says it was his intention there to select a position and deliver battle but upon consulting his officers the opinion was unanimous that his army was not in condition to risk a fight he passed a day in deep doubt and perplexity and at last resolved to march into tennessee sherman desired nothing better than this at the very moment that hood says he conceived this resolution sherman was telegraphing to schofield i want the first positive fact that hood contemplates an invasion of tennessee invite him to do so send him a free pass in hood moved to gadsden on the twentieth of october at which point beauregard joined him and gave his approval to the proposed tennessee campaign sherman thought it useless to follow him it was hard to make him believe that hood really dared to go into tennessee he thought so ill of his adversary's capacity that he was sure that general thomas who was at nashville with a small and imperfectly equipped force then at his disposal could handle hood and his army while sherman marched southward he made no pursuit of hood after he started westward but devoted himself at once to preparations for his march to the sea this movement he said to halleck october nineteenth is not purely military or strategic but it will illustrate the vulnerability of the south they don't know what war means but when the rich planters of the ocony and savannah see their fences and corn and hogs and sheep vanish before their eyes they will have something more than a mean opinion of the yanks even now our poor mules laugh at the fine cornfields and our soldiers riot on chestnuts sweet potatoes pigs and chickens on the next day he sent thomas full orders as to the general plan of action for the rest of the season to pursue hood is folly he said for he can twist and turn like a fox and wear out any army in pursuit to continue to occupy long lines of railroads simply exposes our small detachments to be picked up in detail and forces me to make countermarches to protect lines of communications he therefore proposed to take general howard and his army schofield and his and two corps of thomas's for the southern trip leaving thomas only the fourth corps under stanley though afterwards when hood's intentions were more fully developed he also sent schofield with the twenty-third corps to thomas serious as the movement of hood and beauregard appeared in the latter part of october it never shook sherman's serenity even while the railroad was broken behind him he enjoyed the comfort and plenty which came with his perfect system of foraging on the enemy among the corn and potatoes which cost nothing a bushel if georgia he said can afford to break our railroads she can afford to feed us please preach this doctrine to men who go forth and are likely to spread it grant however was not so entirely at his ease in regard to hood on the first of november he asked sherman do not think it advisable now that hood has gone so far north to entirely ruin him before starting on your proposed campaign with hood's army destroyed you can go where you please with impunity i believed and still believe 
if you had started south while hood was in the neighborhood of you he would have been forced to go after you now that he is far away he might look upon the chase as useless and he will go in one direction while you are pushing in the other if you can see a chance of destroying hood's army attend to that first and make your other move secondary sherman replied giving it as his opinion that if he turned against hood with his whole force he would retreat to the southwest and insisted that he regarded the pursuit of hood as useless if i turn back he continued in a second dispatch the whole effect of my campaign will be lost grant next day assented to this view and said go on as you propose on the third of november sherman reported to halleck the situation of affairs announcing his settled intention to move forward as soon as he could send back all rubbish to the rear and get forward the necessary supplies with which to start advised cooperative movements from thomas's and canby's front which he said would completely bewilder beauregard and make him burst with french despair on the sixth he issued orders to all commanding officers of forts directing preparations to go forward with as much speed as possible but intimating that time would be allowed in present camps for the complete payment of all troops the sending home of the soldiers money and the voting of the soldiers in their camp for president he found time on the same day to write a long letter to grant explaining and justifying his conduct in the october movement expressing his confidence that with stanley and schofield thomas would be able to take care of hood and enlarging upon the vast moral benefit to be derived from the contemplated march if we can march a well-appointed army right through his territory it is a demonstration to the world foreign and domestic that we have a power which davis cannot resist there are thousands of people abroad and in the south who will reason thus if the north can march an army right through the south it is proof positive that the north can prevail in this contest mr lincoln's election which is assured coupled with the conclusion thus reached makes a complete logical whole he then discusses the three routes open to him decides in favor of that having its terminus at charleston or savannah but leaves himself open to adopt either alternative all preparations being completed he caused the foundries mills and shops of every kind in rome to be destroyed on the tenth of november the next day he telegraphed halleck all appearances still indicate that beauregard has got back to his old hole at corinth and i hope you will enjoy it my army prefers to enjoy the fresh sweet potato fields of okmulgee he started on the twelfth with his full staff from kingston to atlanta resting at noon his telegraphic operator with a small pocket instrument which he held in his lap called the chattanooga office and received this last message from general thomas the rock of chickamauga had not been especially pleased with his assignment to defend tennessee but he accepted it as he did every duty ever confided him with modest confidence and devotion i have no fears he said that beauregard can do us any harm now and if he attempts to follow you i will follow him as far as possible if he does not follow you i will then thoroughly organize my troops and i believe shall have men enough to ruin him unless he gets out of the way very rapidly i am now convinced that the greater part of beauregard's army is near florence and tuscumbia and that you will at least have a clear road before you for several days and that your success will fully equal your expectations sherman began to reply dispatch received all right and at that instant the wires were cut and communication ceased as sherman rode towards atlanta that night he met railroad trains going to the rear with furious speed he was profoundly impressed with the strange aspect of affairs two hostile armies marching in opposite directions each in the full belief that it was achieving a final and conclusive result in the great war i was strongly inspired he writes with a feeling that the movement on our part was a direct attack upon the rebel army and the rebel capital at richmond though a full thousand miles of hostile country intervened and that for better or worse it would end the war the result was a magnificent vindication of this soldierly intuition his army consisted in round numbers of sixty thousand men the most perfect in strength health and intelligence that ever went to war 
he had thoroughly purged it of all inefficient material sending to the rear all organizations and even all individuals he thought would be a drag upon his celerity or strength his right wing under howard consisted of the fifteenth corps commanded by osterhaus in the absence of john a logan and the seventeenth corps commanded by frank p blair jr the left wing commanded by slocum comprised the fourteenth corps under jeff c davis and the twentieth corps under a s williams in general orders he had not intimated to the army the object of their march it is sufficient for you to know he said that it involves a departure from our present base and a long difficult march to a new one his special field orders are a model of clearness and conciseness the habitual order of march was to be wherever practicable by four roads as nearly parallel as possible and converging at points to be indicated from time to time there was to be no general train of supplies behind each regiment should follow one wagon and one ambulance a due proportion of wagons for ammunition and provision behind each brigade the separate columns were to start at seven in the morning and make about fifteen miles a day the army was to subsist liberally on the country forage parties under the command of discreet officers were to gather near the routes traveled whatever was needed by the command aiming to keep in the wagons a reserve of at least ten days provisions soldiers were strictly forbidden to enter dwellings of inhabitants or commit trespass the power to destroy mills houses cotton gins etc was entrusted to corps commanders alone no destruction of property was to be permitted in districts where the army was unmolested but relentless devastation was ordered in case of the manifestation of local hostility by the shooting of soldiers or the burning of bridges the cavalry were ordered to appropriate freely horses mules and wagons from the country passed through it was strictly enjoined that the negroes should not be encouraged to follow the army and that none but a certain proportion of able-bodied young men whose services were needed should be allowed to follow precisely at seven o'clock on the morning of the sixteenth of november the great army started on its march a band struck up the anthem of john brown's body lies a mouldering in the grave the soldiers caught up the refrain and to the swelling chorus of glory hallelujah the great march was begun the month that followed will always remain to those sixty thousand men the most romantic and inspiring memory of their lives the weather was favorable all the way to veterans the marches were of reasonable length the work of destroying the southern railroads was so easy to their experienced hands that it hardly delayed the day's march with the exception of the affair on the twenty second of november when p j phillips with a division of smith's georgia troops attacked c c walcott's brigade which was marching as the rear guard of the right wing at griswoldville and met with a severe repulse and a series of cavalry fights between wheeler and kilpatrick near waynesboro there was no fighting to do between atlanta and savannah a swarm of militia and irregular cavalry hung it is true about the front and flank of the marching army but were hardly a source of more annoyance than so many mosquitoes would have been the foragers brought in every evening their heterogeneous supplies from the outlying plantations and although they had to defend themselves every day from scattered forces of the enemy the casualties which they reported each evening were insignificant the utmost efforts of sherman and his officers to induce the negroes to remain quietly at home were not entirely successful the promise of freedom which was to come to them from the victory of the union cause was too vague and indefinite to content them when they saw this vast army moving by before their cabins with flaunting banners which were to them the visible sign and symbol of emancipation in spite of every effort made to drive them away the simple-hearted freedmen gathered in an ever-increasing cloud in the rear of the army and when the campaign was over they peopled the sea islands of georgia and furnished after the war the principal employment of the freedmen's commission the march produced an extraordinary effervescence throughout the confederacy if words could avail anything against heavy battalions sherman would have been annihilated in his first day's march beauregard fulminated his proclamations 
filled with lurid creole rhetoric to the people of georgia calling them to rally round their patriotic governor an adjective which hardly agreed with jefferson davis's recent characterization of governor brown he called on them to obstruct and destroy all the roads in sherman's front flank and rear promising that his army should soon starve in their midst from richmond the same vehement proclamations were rained upon georgia the people were assured that president davis and the secretary of war had done and were still doing all that could be done to meet the emergency let every man fly to arms shouted the georgia members of congress remove your negroes horses cattle and provisions from sherman's army and burn what you cannot carry assail the invader in front flank and rear by night and by day let him have no rest as sherman drew near to milledgeville on the twenty third of november the georgia legislature passed an act to levy the population en masse but this act of desperate legislation had no effect in checking the march of the yankees and the governor state officers and legislature fled in the utmost confusion as sherman entered the place the union general occupied the executive mansion for a day some of the soldiers went to the state house organized themselves into a constituent assembly and after a spirited mock serious debate repealed the ordinance of succession sherman took the greatest possible pains to prevent any damage to the city and marched out on the twenty fourth on the way to millen he ordered his force of cavalry in the direction of augusta but pushed steadily forward with his main body and on the third of december entered millen with blair's corps and paused there a day to bring the army together finding it impossible to stop him the georgia state troops by sharp marching had made their way directly to the vicinity of savannah where sherman himself arrived and invested the city from the savannah to the little uguchi river on the tenth of december general hardy had found it impossible to hold his outer line of works he destroyed the charleston and savannah railroad bridge over the savannah river and withdrew to his inner line he had had in the last days of november a piece of singular good fortune the georgia militia under general g w smith had arrived at grahamsville on the charleston railroad exactly at the proper time to repulse an attack of a division of the national troops under general john p hatch which had been sent by general j g foster to occupy that important road in the rear of hardy several spirited assaults were made by hatch's troops but they were all unsuccessful so that this inestimable route of retreat by way of the union causeway and the charleston road was saved to hardy he had no confidence in his ability to hold savannah permanently against sherman he and richard taylor who had hurried across the confederacy from the west to join him agreed that hardy ought to be ready to abandon savannah before it could be thoroughly invested it was of the utmost importance that his army and the garrison of charleston should be saved and united to oppose the northward march of sherman after savannah should be taken and the repulse of hatch made this most desirable consummation entirely practicable the union causeway was so protected by inundated rice fields that it was impossible or at least exceedingly difficult for sherman to close this avenue of retreat without making a large detachment from his army and a long detour to the north but the first necessity of the situation to sherman was to establish his communications with the sea howard had sent an intelligent scout captain william duncan down the uguchi in a canoe but he had heard no report as to his success in communicating with the fleet the way to the sea was barred by a formidable work called fort McAllister on the south side of the uguchi river sherman determined to reduce this work by assault and assigned for the purpose his own favorite division of the fifteenth corps the same which he had commanded at shiloh and vicksburg his engineers to whom nothing now seemed difficult speedily built a bridge over the river and at sunrise hazen's division passed over with orders to march rapidly down the right bank of the Oguchi and to assault and carry the fort by storm sherman reasoned that the strongest side of the work would be that 
which was constructed to resist an attack by sea, and that the gorge would be comparatively weak. Hazen, however, found so many and such formidable obstacles in his way that it was five o'clock in the afternoon before he was ready for the assault. Sherman waited with intense anxiety, on a signal station in full sight of the work. Finally he received from Hazen a signal message that he was ready, and, at that moment, a small steamer approached from the sea, whose officers inquired by signal whether Fort McAllister was taken. Sherman answered, not yet, but it will be in a minute. Never was a promise more promptly and perfectly kept. At that instant, as Sherman says, we saw Hazen's troops come out of the dark fringe of the woods that encompassed the fort, the lines dressed as on parade, with colors flying, and moving forward with a quick, steady pace. Fort McAllister was then all alive, its big guns belching forth dense clouds of smoke, which soon enveloped our assaulting lines. One collar went down, but was up in a moment. On the lines advanced, faintly seen in the white, sulfurous smoke. There was a pause, a succession of fire, the smoke cleared away, and the parapets were blue with our men, who fired their muskets in the air, and shouted so that we actually heard them, or felt that we did. Fort McAllister was taken. Sherman, without losing a moment's time, took a boat and pushed out to sea to visit General Foster, who, on account of the breaking out of an old wound, was unable to visit him. He also visited Admiral Dahlgren, on his flagship, the Harvest Moon, and having arranged with these officers for assistance and supplies, he returned to Fort McAllister. The capture of this important work had placed his right wing upon impregnable ground, and assured permanently and perfectly his communications with the fleet. At this moment, when all his energies and all his resources should have been free for operations on his left against Savannah, he was thrown into great perplexity by the dispatches from General Grant. An aide-de-camp arrived on the 14th with a letter from the lieutenant general, somewhat indefinite in terms, but it was followed on the next day by one written on the 6th, saying, I have concluded that the most important operation toward closing out the rebellion will be to close out Lee and his army. He therefore suggested that Sherman should establish a base on the seacoast, leaving there all his artillery and cavalry, and with the rest of his army come north by water with all dispatch. The contents of these letters, says Sherman, gave me great uneasiness, for I had set my heart on the capture of Savannah, which I believed to be practicable and to be near. For me to embark for Virginia by sea was so complete a change from what I had supposed would be the course of events that I was very much concerned. Slocum had already occupied Argyle Island and the upper end of Hutchinson Island, and had a brigade on the South Carolina shore opposite, and was urging that he might be permitted to pass one of his corps to the north side of Savannah to operate against Hardy's communications with South Carolina. But Sherman, feeling hampered by Grant's orders, supposing that a fleet of vessels would soon be pouring in ready to convey his army to Virginia, instead of acting at once with his usual energy against Hardy, set about preparing the ground around Fort McAllister for the fortified camp which Grant had directed him to establish. Betaking himself to his pen, which he handled with as much ease and alacrity as his sword, he wrote, on the 17th of December, a summons to Hardy for the surrender of Savannah. He assured him that he had sufficient means for the reduction of Savannah, that he had guns that could cast heavy and destructive shot to the heart of the city, that he held and controlled every avenue by which Savannah could be supplied, and was therefore justified in demanding its surrender. Had his note ended there, it would have been liable to no criticism, except ineffectiveness, but he closed by the threat that if forced to assault he should feel justified in resorting to the harshest measures and should make little effort to restrain his army. He enclosed, as a final blunder, a copy of Hood's demand for the surrender of Rosaka, in which, it will be remembered, that indiscreet warrior had threatened to put the garrison to the sword, and on his demand being refused had marched away from the place. Sherman thus suggested a historical parallel which he should have avoided at any cost. 
hardy answered with great calmness and propriety denying all general sherman's premises and refusing to surrender the town in reply to the menace of sherman hardy said i have hitherto conducted the military operations entrusted to my direction in strict accordance with the rules of civilized warfare and i should deeply regret the adoption of any course by you that may force me to deviate from them in the future sherman now resolved in consideration of the short time allowed him by his understanding of grant's orders to assault the place but in view of the difficulty of the ground the only avenues of approach being narrow causeways running across inundated rice fields he determined to make a final effort to invest the city completely so that in case of success hardy's entire army might be captured the only avenue by which hardy remained in communication with south carolina was the union causeway connecting his pontoon bridge with the outlying works at gramsville which had been thus far held successfully against foster by the georgia militia sherman visited foster again to request him to move hatch's division down to buffton a point from which it might reach the union causeway fortify and hold it foster at once engaged to perform this work and sherman returned after a tedious trip so delayed by contrary winds and low tides that it was evening on the twenty first of december before he arrived at his camp the startling news that awaited him was that hardy had successfully evacuated savannah during the night of the twentieth and the morning of the twenty-first he had marched his garrison over the pontoon bridge and northward along the union causeway undisturbed by foster's troops he had carried away his men and his light artillery but had destroyed his ironclads and the navy yard leaving however savannah a rich prize in itself and made still richer in spoil of every kind so quietly was the change of government of the city effected that a blockade runner which had eluded the fleet outside steamed up to the wharf unconscious of danger and its captain did not learn he had lost his vessel until he presented his papers at the custom-house though somewhat disappointed at hardy's escape whatever chagrin sherman may have felt speedily passed away in view of the enormous importance of the acquisition he had made riding into savannah he sent a brief dispatch to the president in these words i beg to present you as a christmas gift the city of savannah with one hundred and fifty heavy guns and plenty of ammunition also about twenty five thousand bales of cotton his gratification was increased by the receipt a few days later of letters from grant and halleck full of generous and unqualified praise for his great campaign and what was still more grateful to his feelings an absolute revocation of the orders to proceed north by sea general halleck said general grant's wishes are that this whole matter of your future action should be left entirely to your own discretion grant said if you capture the garrison of savannah it certainly will compel lee to detach from richmond or give us nearly the whole south my own opinion is that lee is adverse to going out of virginia and if the cause of the south is lost he wants richmond to be the last place surrendered if he has such views it may be well to indulge him until we get everything else in our hands he closed by congratulating sherman upon the splendid results of his campaign the like of which is not read of in past history to crown the year's work with the most transcendent gratification possible to a soldier came also letters detailing the check inflicted upon hood at franklin and the glorious victory at nashville where thomas had utterly broken in pieces the last invading army of the confederates in the west this was to sherman the final vindication of his great campaign proving as he held that his army had been properly divided and that each part was duly proportioned to its work congress passed at once a joint resolution tendering the thanks of the nation to major-general william t sherman and through him to the officers and men under his command for their gallantry and good conduct in their late campaign from chattanooga to atlanta and the triumphal march thence through georgia to savannah terminating in the capture and occupation of that city but no expression of appreciation and of gratitude equaled in the mind of sherman the letter with which the president acknowledged the receipt on christmas eve of his dispatch from savannah for mr lincoln in this remarkable letter gave to sherman as he had given to grant after vicksburg 
the inestimable assurance that the credit of the victory was exclusively his own, that the government claimed no part in it. My dear General Sherman, many, many thanks for your Christmas gift, the capture of Savannah. When you were about leaving Atlanta for the Atlantic coast, I was anxious, if not fearful, but feeling that you were the better judge, and remembering that nothing risked, nothing gained, I did not interfere. Now the undertaking being a success, the honor is all yours, for I believe that none of us went farther than to acquiesce. And taking the work of General Thomas into count, as it should be taken, it is, indeed, a great success. Not only does it afford the obvious and immediate military advantages, but in showing to the world that your army could be divided, putting the stronger part to an important new service, and yet leaving enough to vanquish the old opposing force of the whole, Hood's army, it brings those who sat in darkness to see a great light. But what next? I suppose it will be safe if I leave General Grant and yourself to decide. Please make my grateful acknowledgments to your whole army, officers, and men. Upon this letter General Sherman may safely rest his claim to the glory of the march to the sea. It would be fruitless toil to examine and refute the claims which are made by the friends of other generals that Sherman only adopted and executed the original thought of somebody else. It is not to be questioned that many other people had thought of marching through the center of Confederacy. Hunter had proposed to march a column westward from Hilton Head. Burnside, while at Knoxville, had suggested to Halleck that he should be allowed to move by Bragg's flank to Atlanta to destroy the enemy's communications, and thence to move to such a place on the coast where cover can be obtained, as shall be agreed upon with you. It is proposed to take no trains but to live upon the country. But it is idle to multiply these quotations from men who imagined such a march. There were men before Columbus who dreamed of sailing west to find India. The glory and honor belong of right to the man who translates the vague thought into substantial achievement. General Sherman has the right to have his own account of the ripening of this plan in his mind implicitly accepted. He says, As soon as Hood had shifted across from Lovejoy's to Palmetto, I saw the move in my mind's eye, and after Jeff Davis's speech at Palmetto September 26th, I was more positive in my conviction, but was in doubt as to the time and manner. When General Hood first struck our railroad above Marietta, we were not ready, and I was forced to watch his movements further till he had caroomed off to the west of Decatur. Then I was perfectly convinced, and had no longer a shadow of doubt. The only possible question was as to Thomas's strength and the ability to meet Hood in the open field. I did not suppose that General Hood, though rash, would venture to attack fortified places like Alatuna, Riscassa, and Decatur, and Nashville, but he did so, and in so doing he played into our hands perfectly. End of chapter 20 And End of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 9 by John Hay and John George Nicolay.